Welcome to Kendall vs. Kendall, where we discuss the world of bikes. My name is Jeff Kendallied, and while I'm not joined by my normal co-host and Jensen USA employee, Seth Kendall, I'm instead lucky enough to be sitting with Colin Hughes, lead engineer at Ibis Cycles. Colin, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, this is good. We're at the Ibis Ripley dealer launch, and the bike's going to go live in just a few days. Jensen USA, the sponsor of the show, will have a few representatives here tomorrow as well. In today's podcast, I want to go over the development of the new Ripley, and I also want to go over some of Colin's own background with designing the bike. Uh, Colin, let's bring it way back. We met each other at Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo, California in 2003. Yeah, that was a while ago now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're dating ourselves, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember you were a cross-country guy, but you certainly held your own on the downhills. You even did a yeah. few of the downhill races, for sure. Yeah, back then we raced everything. Yeah. Um, so we, we went to the races every couple of weekends during mountain bike season, and we raced all the events. That's um, what it was all about. Especially the guys who were, uh, you know, the, the better B riders and the A riders. We were always competing for the overall season omnium and so all the guys who were uh you know the faster cross-country guys also were trying to get some downhill points too so we all raced downhill also um and so yeah that was pretty fun to actually try to become a downhiller <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say you just tried to become yeah. a downhiller you definitely did well in a bunch of those yeah i, I had my my moments <laughs> um i was de definitely uh converting at that time so converting to just more aggressive riding yeah yeah instead of just being a, a cross-country guy i was starting to become actually decent at downhilling so. yeah and you had the spirit for it yeah like, i think most of downhilling is mental more than anything right. else and it's just can you send yeah. it that much more? yeah i mean i've always had the need for speed um so <laughs> you put me on two wheels and i just want to go fast nice so uh downhilling came somewhat naturally to me in other ways not so much um Cross country came a little more naturally to me because I'm just so skinny. Yes, but uh, <laughs> I've always weighed more than you, and I've yeah. always been like eight inches shorter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I did like the going fast aspect of downhill racing. Cool. Uh, well, as you went into school there, you were a mechanical engineer. Yep. Why did you decide to study engineering, and has the bike industry always been an eventual goal? Of yeah, this? that was the whole plan. Okay. Um, I got motivated to go to school to become a bike engineer. Uh, there wasn't much of a plan B other than <laughs> just having a mechanical engineering degree. Somebody would probably hire me for something, but, for something. Nice. Um, but, uh, being a bike engineer was the motivator okay. to go do that. So, and when did that kind of desire start? Uh, pretty soon after high school. Okay. Um, you know, I was an okay student in high school, but not terribly motivated. Um, then I went to junior college and kind of figured it out, like nice. what I really actually wanted to do. And from then on, I was a good student. Cool. And that's how I got into Cal Poly and uh, became an engineer. I so wish I would have done that path as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. The The engineering path or just the junior college path? The junior college oh, path. Yeah. I actually steered away from engineering. Oh, okay. But I was in high school at the time and clueless about what the next step was. 
Oh, yeah. The junior college was good. I, I grew up a lot during junior college. Exactly. And I worked in a bike shop for the whole time I was there, and that was really good. Um, Do you think it's possible to be like performing well in the bike industry without having ever worked at a regular brick-and-mortar shop? I would say it'd be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, without that grounding of what actually happens in a shop, it'd be hard <laughs> to make decisions, I think. Sure. So I could see that. Um, let's, I got a few more questions for you about your background. So you ended up graduating from school in 2004, right? Yeah. Okay. And then I remember you worked at Kestrel and at Fox at different times. Right. What was your career path? Well, my first, uh, internship was with Titec actually, oh, wow. which was, uh, great. I was the test lab engineer. And so I spent an entire summer breaking things. Which Can you is tell super our, fun. W- real quick, we should probably tell our audience what Titec is. Oh yeah, they, they're wow. They're uh, yeah. They haven't been around in a little while, um, but they used to make handlebars and stems and seat posts uh, in the late '90s and early 2000s. Um, one of the early titanium innovators. Yeah. But I was back in the lab breaking stuff for a whole summer, and carbon is obviously winning. And so I was like, okay, I need to know about carbon. And so what year is this that you're in the Titec lab? That was 2002. And the carbon yeah. is doing really well in the yeah. lab. Wow. Yeah, so the carbon is definitely winning in the lab in 2002. Okay. So I was like, okay, I need to take some composites classes. Um, so the next summer, um, I got, well, the next summer, Titec, folded temporarily and I got laid off and so I just rode my bike for the rest of the summer nice. and so I had a really good race season that next year <laughs> uh, the summer after that some of my friends from Titec had ended up at Fox and so I got an internship at Fox and so it was actually Fox's okay. first ever engineering intern Nice. Um, and they didn't really know what to do with me those guys were so busy uh, this is 03, 04? This is 04, yeah. So the Fox 36 came out R- in 04, right? Right, yeah. So I I helped hand assemble the very first 36s and what? 40s. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, the 40 came out. Yeah, at the were, same time. Yeah, they debuted it at Big Bear. I remember seeing right. Marla Streb riding one, like, what's that? So those engineers were, like, super pinned, yeah. trying to get these two forks out, and I was helping them, you know, hand-winding springs to wow. try to make stuff work, uh, pressing uppers into crowns and uh putting these forks together and uh and i had like some little projects of my own uh but the the bike guys were so busy that uh they couldn't think of projects for me to do and so i ended up working for the moto guys as well oh wow Uh, so that's pretty fun yeah Uh, so how long was that internship that was just one summer okay um but i learned a lot about 3d cad there uh learned how to do a 2d drawing really well um, lot, learned a lot from those guys. Cool. So that was really good. And that's a very formative time of your career. Still pretty green. Yeah, yeah, for it's sure. Second industry, third se- technically. Se- yeah, second industry internship, but I was only a quarter from graduating at that point. Okay. So kind of had most of my schooling at that point. So you go from Fox back to school and then to Kestrel. Yeah, yeah so after school, I ended up at Kestrel, uh, which was a carbon bike frame company, which I was interested in. They're more of a road and tri company. And I rode a little bit of road back then, but you know, mountain biking is always my first love. Sure. But I, I enjoyed it. Um, but it was pretty obvious that it was a sinking ship 
but I was learning so much that I didn't care. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I developed some bikes there, made some good stuff. And then Kestrel got bought out by Fuji okay. and wanted, they, they moved the whole company to Philadelphia and wow. I had no desire to go to Philadelphia sure. when I was living in Santa Cruz. Uh, and so that's when I jumped over to Ibis. Nice. And that was the end of 2007. So you had kind of a while at Kestrel. Yeah, it's two and a half years. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was where I got my carbon frame education. Yeah. And my Chinese supplier education. You know, oh, I man. did five or six trips to China every year for the, those first two and a half years. Oof. Um, so I basically started my career in a Chinese factory, really learning how bikes are made. Yes. Um, so. And that, Kestrel, did they still have any of the engineering intel from when they were manufacturing oh, stateside? Yeah, yeah, like. They were still being run by two of the original engineers that okay. were back there. They were there from the early 90s, or late 80s even. Um, so it's a super so, legitimate company, very, yeah. very technologically established. So when you're going over to these factories, you're carrying with you the orders and instructions of guys that have not only been through the cycle, but they've yeah. done it themselves. Well, they're some of the guys who taught the Chinese factories how to make oh, wow. frames in the first place. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, they had a lot of credibility, mm -hmm. um, and they taught me everything that they could so that I could go over there instead of them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. Cool. It's a, it a good foundation for sure. So how much of the technology from your times at Kestrel and Fox and even Tytech is still relevant in today's bike engineering world? Well, all the, all the 3d CAD stuff is still very useful. Okay. Um, and a lot of the carbon stuff is still useful. We, mold frames slightly differently than what we did back then. We've advanced a bit. So that was uh, foam bladders back then? Uh, no, that was laying up over silicon mandrels okay. that then get removed from the frame, and then you have to put the bladder in afterwards, and you're never quite sure where the bladder is going to end up. Right. And so the way we do it now, which is much better, we have the EPS foam mandrels with the bladder already on it, and we lay up on that, and that all goes in the mold together, so nothing moves around. Cool. So you know everything's in the right spot. Yes. And that's way more stable. Uh, so that's that's better. And then we, it makes it so you can do the layups a little differently too. And cool. so yeah, there's no joints or seams in the layups. So yeah, things are you know just a little more advanced now. Yeah. So. But a lot of the principles must still carry yeah. over. Yeah. So how you how you design a layup is fairly similar. Yeah, and in terms of damper technology, we've seen some improvements there, but it's not like, to me, it doesn't seem like we've fully integrated anything totally crazy, like live valve or anything like that, that would make... Yeah, people keep trying stuff, but yeah. uh, we at IBIS are lucky enough to have a DW link license, and they pedal so well that we don't feel that we need to rely on a lot of shock technology, Yeah, uh, which is nice because we get to have nice open shocks that work for absorbing bumps all the time, and we don't have to <laughs> have, try to lock them out no. to get them to pedal well. One less cable on the handlebars. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad we don't have lockouts on the handlebars. Right. Um, your own riding background is something that I think is super important. You've done plenty of races, but you, to me, you don't really seem to define yourself as simply a racer, quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes here for the podcast yeah. listeners. <laughs> if for the sake of the podcast discussion, you had to define your riding style, how would you? Uh, I would say I'm either like a reformed cross-country racer okay, or, or just the journeyman cyclist. The journeyman cyclist. Yeah, What's so, that? I mean, I've tried every aspect of cycling. 
um, done road, I've done trials, I've done downhilling, you know, I've tried everything and I wasn't going to be pro at any of it, but I didn't suck either. So, um, yeah, so I'm pretty well-rounded and versatile, but you know. I remember you had a trials bike in your garage. I remember wanting to ride it so bad. I never actually got down there. Yeah, I had a modified trials bike. Yeah, a little Monty or something. It was good for hopping over over picnic tables and nothing else. (laughs) It was the most impractical bike I've ever owned. Yeah, but come on, it's a trials bike. It was cool, but it only went four miles an hour anywhere. If you're pedaling it, you're not doing it right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see here. So is the Ripley designed to be your personal favorite bike? Yeah, that's pretty much always been the ripley's goal okay and, uh, for all the iterations of ripley. all the yeah that's kind of uh you know designed to be my main bike okay you know i have a bigger bike that'd be the ripmo mm-hmm. that i take to the sierras or i go try that new line that i just found up in uh campus yes that you know first time on that line i'm right the ripmo okay but for most of my riding uh the ripley's what i want to be on so let's define journeyman cyclist a little bit, because if this is like your perfect bike for your type mm. of riding, let's tell our listeners a little bit what your type of riding is. Um, little hills, I, long flat sections. Do you just ride railroad tracks? No, I, I am terrible <laughs> at long flat sections. I don't produce any power, so I, I went on power to ra- power to weight. Okay. And so I always want to be going either straight up or straight down. Okay. So you like climbing, you like descending. Yeah. Elevation uh-huh. is good. Yeah. Elevation is good. Uh, I like rolling trails. Um, I like traversing over rolling terrain. Okay. But I like really technical trails too. And then throwing a couple really good descents. Like what attributes would one of your favorite technical trails have? Are we talking like gnarly, chunky rock, baby heads, super loose, oh, yeah. roots, yeah, fucking I'll, I'll, jumps, drops? Yeah, all that stuff. All of it. But, Excellent. But only to a certain height, right? Okay. Like, I'm not going to go do the 15-foot double. Okay. But I'm very happy going through all the tech. Cool. So. And are you a jumper? Do you ride yeah. smooth? Do you ride uh, like a Gumby man moving the bike but not yourself? Y- yeah. I, I'm, I generally ride pretty smooth thank you and uh other engineer andy just brought us some beers thank yes. you andy <laughs> thank you um yeah I, I jump the bike around and play with it a lot um i'm definitely not one to just plow th- through things so i think that's one of the things i noticed about your riding style like i don't think you were ever like a bmxer per se no that's my one weakness but you're not a bad jumper by any right. means. I mean, I've seen the whole spectrum of like cross-country rider starts riding down trails, hits a few jumps, and it's kind of scary. But when you jump, it's it's pretty proper, and it's with good confidence and good authority. So yeah, I, I had to learn that late in life, unfortunately. That's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't race BMX as a kid like you did. And so when I moved to Santa Cruz my first summer, I tried to go out and jump one bigger jump every week. Nice. And so that was my progression, <laughs> just hanging out up at UCSC or the local jump spots and just trying to do one bigger thing and had to figure it out late. And then I stopped once I realized I didn't actually have health insurance anymore. Oh, so. no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, nothing bad happened. That's good. You're but, here today yeah, in yeah. one piece yeah. for the most part. Yeah. As are we all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So moving into the bike-specific stuff, I'm... I bet a lot of our listeners are very curious on the details of the Ripley. For me, I love the tech stuff on the bikes, but I love the lifestyle and the stories behind the bikes just as much. So to me, like hearing your background about going from Tie Tech to Fox to Kestrel, 
I'm fascinated by that because then we actually see these physical bikes. And I wish we had a Ripley right in front of us. Cause be that nice would to look be, at right now. Yes, it would be. Um, we could actually go grab one real quick. Yeah. Do you have one close by? Uh, no. They're all down at the lodge. All right. I guess we're not grabbing one. But I got a pretty good mental image of it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been staring at it for a while. I guess I've got one too. I yeah. I did a whole video about one. Come okay. to think of it. All right. Um, Probably make it work. Okay. So moving into the bike specific stuff, which is yeah. super interesting and important too, though I love all that, the industry and background stuff behind the scenes, if you will. I think that's all super rad. So uh, was the Ripmo launched yet when you were already started on the new Ripley? Like at what point were you looking at the LS V3, the yellow and or black one thinking like, all right, I want to redo this, and I want to change up X, Y, Z. Yeah, pretty much as soon as I decided, or we all decided and figured out the seat tube angle thing. Like, once we cranked the seat tube angle forward on the Ritmo, we're like, oh, well now we have to do it on everything. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, like, the Ripley was the bike that still had the 73 seat tube, which was the slackest of all of our bikes at that point. We're yeah. like, okay, that's... That's the one that needs to happen gotcha. next. Um, because after getting comfortable in my Ritmo, I was like, yeah, I'm liking this new geometry. I don't, okay. don't really want to ride Mild Ripley anymore. So you were definitely riding the Ripmo and oh, yeah. enjoying it as yeah. you were beginning to consider how the redesign of the Ripley would go. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I was already on the Ritmo for several months okay. with the new seat tube angle when I started working on the Ripley. But for how long it takes to get one of these bikes from napkin to actual production, which it seems like it's at least 18 months to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's 18 no months to two years for sure. So this was a while before the Ripmo actually came out. Yeah. So I had the Ripley probably 80% done before the Ripmo launched. Okay. 80, uh, like done like physical it, prototypes it, being it, written? No, or just 80% done in CAD. Okay. Design-wise. Yeah, digitally. Digitally done, um, which is about halfway when you're digital done, then you're about halfway done with the project yeah <laughs> uh, hopefully yeah and so we did the ripmo launch and then pretty quickly thereafter by gauging the reaction we knew we were on the right track with the ripley and with the rip for the ripmo it was yeah the reaction we, was yeah we gauged the reaction to the ripmo which was amazing yeah i'm like okay we're, we're on the right track with the ripley and so i just quickly finished it and then here we are, about, nice. a, year, about a year later. Yes, almost <laughs> to the day. Yeah. Holy smokes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Actually, I think the Ritmo came out before Sea Otter. Yeah, it was a little before Sea Otter. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was March. Right about now, a couple weeks after Sea Otter is probably when I sent off those first files for the Ripley. Okay. Wow, yeah. that's pretty quick. Yeah. Cool. Um, we're, we're getting a lot better. We're getting faster. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I know in terms of the weight between the Ripmo and the Ripley, there's a bit of a difference. So mm -hmm. how do they compare in terms of weight? What did you do to make the Ripley lighter than the Ripmo? Um, the Ripley frame is about five pounds for the medium uh, without shock, which is actually not a whole lot lighter than the Ripmo. Okay. And... That's because of two things. One, the Ripmo is crazy light for its class. And two, the Ripley retained all the Ripmo's stiffness. And so it's hard to make a bike a lot lighter and keep all the stiffness. Um, I have to ask, is there a way to make the Ripmo even lighter? Uh, not for the type of bike it is. Okay. No. Uh, that that thing's pretty much there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and with maintaining the stiffness, there wasn't a whole lot of... Uh, weight to be taken out of the Ripley either. But 
we put a lighter shock on it, the inline shock versus a piggyback shock. Yeah. Uh, and then you build up the bike with the 34 and, you know, more trail tires instead of enduro tires. Sure. And then all of a sudden you get a bike that's three pounds lighter than a Ritmo. Yeah. And that's a pretty big deal. The Ripley I rode weighed 26 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't my, believe that. My XL Ripley 4 weighs 26 and a half. It's like it felt like riding my vintage Mojo tie that a, right. is a hardtail and B only has 80 mils of travel on the front and doesn't even have disc brakes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. You can throw it around the air and get really playful with it on the trail. A little uh, mini bike. Yeah, but it's still got pretty much Ritmo geometry. And so you have all the confidence. Um, so it's really fun. So if you could say in what categories um, would the Ripley improve the rider's experience compared to the Ripmo? Well, it's just how much weight do you want to push around? How big a tires do you want to push around? Okay. You know, if you're, if you love those enduro tires and you need that protection and you're going to do some big jumps, then stick to the Ripmo. But if you don't actually need an enduro world series capable bike, probably get a Ripley. Cool. Yeah. And with the Ripley in terms of the forks, I'm um, assuming you've ridden it with a 120, a 130, and a 140? Yeah. So the old Ripley 3, um, because we pushed the bottom bracket so low to get it to corner well, you really couldn't put a fork shorter than 130 on it. Uh, with this one, I wanted to make the bike a little more versatile. Uh, the 34-step cast had just come out when I was finishing the Ripley. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that fork worked on it. And so we realized that, you know, now that you can have a seven inch dropper post on a trail bike, you can drop your torso seven inches. And so five millimeters of bottom bracket height doesn't really matter for your CG if you get to drop your whole body seven inches. And so we raised the bottom bracket five mils and that made it so that you can put a 120 fork on it. No problem. Nice. So, so you've ridden it with the 120, yeah. the 130 and the 140. Yeah, it works out fine. What's your personal bike got on the front? Uh, the 130. The 130, yeah. the 34. Yeah. Cool. Um, that gives the most balanced feel. Uh, one thing we figured out a while ago was uh, rear axle travel is measured vertically regardless of what the axle path actually is whereas fork travel is measured along the head angle yeah linear and the vertical is the sign of the head angle yes if you measured it vertically 130 travel fork goes up 120 millimeters yeah if that 0.9 no it's actually 120 yeah so it's like actually balanced and so that makes a really nice riding bike on a 66 and a half head angle bike yeah okay Mm -hmm. i've been thinking like slacker bikes lately have a little bit right, that's more a reduction in, tr- yeah, in vertical so travel. You up fork a little bit more. So like on the Ritmo, it's a 145 in the rear, and the 160 matches up with it vertically. Yeah. So that's where yeah. that bike feels balanced. Sign of 65 is yeah. 0.90. Mm-hmm. I spent a whole day doing math trying to figure out oh, how yeah? much the trust to change this, the bike's riding. You, you've done that more recently than I have. That I just plug it into CAD now. Yeah, that's so much easier. <laughs> have Kat tell me what it is. <laughs> My wife yeah. laughed at me for like a whole evening when I had trying to, to do her, geometry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> trigonometry. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of signs, cosines, yeah. and tangents. So uh-huh. Katoa, it was good. Um, so getting back into the Ripley here, uh, one thing that I think is pretty cool are these lower links. So I remember when the Ripmo came out, there was a big announcement. Hey guys, look, we have bushings. Yeah. And I remember reading so many comments online like bushings. We've heard that before. Uh-huh. 
And honestly, like I haven't touched my bike and I don't plan on touching it. It's been fine. Right. And honestly, I have not heard from anyone who's had a negative experience with the bushing setup on the Ripmo. Right. So how did you end up adapting this design to the Ripley and why did you decide to stick with it? Um, well, it, it was working really well for us on the Ripmo. Um, and it's so much lighter than any of our bearing lower lengths that to make a light bike, which was one of the goals of the Ripley, we had to keep using the bushing lower link. Uh, and it's worked out really well. The Ripmo, uh, people have actually written into our customer service saying, hey, I tore down my Ripmo after a muddy UK winter and the lower link is still clean and running smooth. And nice. you don't hear that from the UK very often. No. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're pretty happy with how that's worked out. And so we just put the exact same link from the Ripmo onto the Ripley. Like, parts are interchangeable. Wow. So, yeah, it's going to work great. And it wasn't too heavy for the Ripley? No, no, because we're talking such a dramatic reduction just from taking all the steel out of it yeah. that the link itself is a decent weight even nice. without changing anything. I remember at the Ritmo presentation, Hans passed around an HD4 right. lower link, mm -hmm. and like you feel it, and it's a link, yeah. you know, it's yeah. real. And then he passed around the Ritmo link, and it was just ridiculous, yeah. the weight difference. Yeah, because our lower links don't move very much, and they have a lot of load going through them, and cartridge ball bearings don't like going through little rotations at high load. And so... You just have to make those bearings really big and heavy to deal with that. And that's not the case with the bushing. It's just totally different. And so they do those little rotations all day long just fine. Yeah. Uh, and they weigh two grams instead of 25. Yes. You got four of those and it's a quarter pound right there. Boom. So, yeah, it's a big difference. So will we ever see bushings on the upper link of one of these bikes? Um, I don't know. The upper links move a lot more, okay, and there's less load in them, and so it's a much better application for cartridge bearings. Okay. So for right now, we're going to keep using them for that. I think it's really cool that the bike didn't have to see bushings on every single pivot point. Yeah. Because honestly, it's not. It sounds like it's not that practical. So. I mean, you just want to use the right thing for the right application. Yeah. And the bushings are the right application for the lower link and the clevis and. Cartridge bearings are the right application for the upper link because it just moves so much more. Cool. So one thing I wanted to ask about, the suspension kinematics of the new Ripley versus the old Ripley and also versus the Ripmo. So how much has changed there? Uh, the suspension kinematics follow the Ripmo much more closely. Okay. So to compare it to the old Ripley, it's quite a bit more prog progressive. Okay. The old Ripley was originally designed to be... A, XC marathon bike and so we wanted guys to be able to use that travel on you know cross-country race courses well they'd be seated they'd be hammering a yeah. lot they'd be trying to just milk every ounce of forward speed they right. could and then conserve energy in the downhills and not risk yeah. a crash it's a whole different riding style than exactly then, ended up kind and of then we released the bike, bike and everybody started using it for enduro yeah so. i was guilty uh, of that yeah I think it was a great race bike uh-huh uh lopes was too so <laughs> yeah now, with the new Ripley 4, we got to update the kinematics cool. and make it more progressive. So how many air volume reducers come in the stock shock and back? Uh, I don't remember offhand. Okay. Yeah. Is there room to I, I don't want to be quoted on the record. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. No big deal. I don't think anyone's going to listen into a podcast to figure out how many reducers yeah. are in their shock. It's something I figured out a while ago. So, <laughs> you Cool. Know. 
production on those shocks happened months ago. So. Yeah, is there room for me to add more volume? Yes, races? there is room. Nice. It's not maxed out. Yeah. yeah. When I was riding it for the video put together, I just left the stock shock on there and I turned the the black um, open mode adjust mm -hmm. to the firmest setting and I was pretty happy with that. Cool. Yeah, I hit a jump that's probably 25, 30 feet long. Wow. And yeah, it worked out fine. That's good. Cool. Good. Yeah, that's happy camper. I had a backpack <laughs> on even. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Full of camera gear, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> it had a GoPro on a, on a <laughs> okay. gimbal for sure. Um, the geometry is way more new school on this than the Ripley. So you mentioned that the, or than the original Ripley. Yes. So you mentioned the Ripmo gave you a bit of insight as to what geometry might be a nice direction to head. So we talked about seat angles. What else in terms of geometry has changed on this new updated Ripley? Well, with the seat angle moving forward, it pushes the whole cockpit forward. And so the reaches go out 45 millimeters wow. per, per size. Wow. Um, so that's like two sizes almost. And so the bike's So what's the correlation long. between the seat tube increasing and the top tube increasing? Is it going to feel longer it's when you're seated or it feels it, similar? The effective top tube, I guess you could say. Yeah, so it's you know it's got a Ripmo top tube length. Okay. Um, and then the reaches are just, you know, slightly longer just to get round numbers like the large gotcha. Ripmo is 471. And then the Ripley is 475. Oh wow! So, you know, just to kind of make round cuts, and so the uh, the XL is 500. Oh, so, cool! Yeah, cool. Um, the other thing is the head angle got kicked out a degree, so a whole another degree. Yeah, so 66 and a half. Okay. But that's with the short offset fork also, mm -hmm. which makes it feel even more stable than the head angle indicates. Uh, so it's the equivalent of having a 65 head angle, which is pretty extreme for a trail bike. It doesn't climb like but, it has a 65. But it totally right? works because of the seat angle. You've got yeah. enough weight on it that it steers nicely. The front end stays down while you're climbing. Um, yeah, so all that stuff that we learned on the Ripmo gets carried into the Ripley 4. And as you're going through the geometry and figuring that out, um, what stem sizes are you forecasting customers to use? Uh, 50 for everybody because that's all they want to use anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't anticipate anybody going more than plus or minus 10 of a 50. Okay, yeah. so like ballpark 60 down to 40, something yeah, like that. 35, that's about it. I yeah. feel like you start going much shorter than 35, you need to put that dent in your handlebar to right. clear the fork or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to keep my ball-peen hammer away from my hand. <laughs> <for now>. Exactly. <laughs> um, who did the industrial design of the bike? It's got the similar consistent look as to everything else, but it's pretty cool. It's got some nice yeah. little... Yeah, well, uh, Roxy does all of our industrial design. Cool. Um, Do you want to tell the listeners who Roxy is? Roxy is one of the partners in Ibis, one of the original partners, and she is a very talented industrial designer who makes sure that all of our stuff looks correct and good and beautiful. Cool. Um, and so her and I work very closely together on trying to figure out how to make stuff look good. Okay. Um, yeah. And so the platform is very obviously based on the Ritmo, but uh, we did change quite a bit on it. Uh, yeah. Thinned out the seat stays. Uh, oh, really? Did a new shock mount for it uh, just because the shock mount was a little further away from the down tube because it's a smaller shock. Uh, and so we gave it the cutout and the shock mount. So okay. Give it a little bit of a unique look to it. The cutout definitely looks like you're taking every possible gram out of it. Right. The We're trying. Uh, trying to make it look light and svelte and uh, end up light 
So. One of the my favorite details of the industrial design as I look through the bike is that in that forward shock mount where it has that cutout, it's kind of like it's got an extra rib coming all the way around oh, the yeah. down tube. Mm-hmm. So it kind of wrapping down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems like a pretty cool extra little detail there, and it definitely. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that is simply, you know, cosmetic versus actual like making it stiffer and stronger, but it certainly looks like that's going to be... Yeah, you want that shock mount to be well-supported. Yeah. And you know that... So that's not just pure industrial design. Yeah, the carbon's going to be there anyways Mm -hmm. to form the shock mount. And if you don't have that there, then you're going to have a lump on the inside of your down tube. Ah. And so it's better to just have it uh, pop out a little bit like it does. Yeah, that looks sweet. And it's got to get pretty close to notice it. Yeah. It's kind of subtle. And that little little pocket in front of the shock is kind of nice. You can, like, put stuff there. Oh. Yeah. I put my data acquisition there you go. Uh, sensor right there. I feel like we need to create an acronym, and then we can yeah. make this a selling feature right. of the bike. <laughs> yeah, we, we're not very good at the acronym department. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a good call to action for our listeners. Kay. If you guys have any ideas on a great acronym for what Ibis can call this space in front of the shock where you could put like a cliff bar or a starburst right. packet or whatever. CO2 cartridge. Email your yeah. favorite acronym over to spendel <laughs> at Jensen USA. That's over to my co-host Seth who's not here so he'll be pleasantly surprised to see your emails with Ibis acronyms for that stash spot on the front of the <laughs> Ripley shock mount. Yeah. That's hilarious. So with Roxy doing the industrial design of the bike, how do you, a lot of people like hear that an engineer designs bikes and then they hear that an industrial designer designs bikes. The term design mean, yeah, can mean a lot of different things. Uh-huh. So, and then they also hear that Dave Weagle designed the bike. So right. there's a lot of different people involved here. How many total have input on this and how do you work with say Roxy doing the shaping and Dave doing the kinematics? Um, our process is for us at Ibis to decide what kind of bike we want to make. And that involves me and all the other partners, Hans and Tom and Roxy and Scott. And uh, we're also kind of all the product management team. Mm-hmm. And so we decide what we want to make. And then usually I'll take a first crack at the geometry and then we'll discuss it. And when we like what we have, we give it to Dave. And then Dave gives us the suspension kinematics that will make the suspension do what we'd like it to do. You're like, hey, Dave, we want it to be a little more progressive than our last bike. You know, that kind of stuff. And then... How long does Dave need to do his kinematics? He's pretty quick these days. He can... Like an hour? or like No, no. (laughs) He could do it in a couple days. Okay. But we always, you know, want to go back and forth and iterate a little bit with Dave. Okay. Um, Because... You know, we're we're gonna be locked into the suspension kinematics for yes. a long time. Many years. Yeah, and so it's always a balance of uh you know, making the ultimate performing suspension and making a frame that's inherently good, you know. Sure. Like so you know, there's always a little iteration there. Like, you know, Dave I need the shock move forward just a little bit because it's a little close to the seat tube. Okay. Um, you know, that kind of little stuff. And so we go back and forth and with Dave on that. So you get multiple revisions yeah. of the kinematics depending on external factors of positioning, clearancing. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, you know, that takes a month or so. Cool. Um, and then I'll start putting components in that model and start building my 3D model. And then I give it to Roxy and she starts sketching in 2D uh, what the bike should look like. Um, and then 
I start trying to make that in 3D. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) And that's where a lot of the interpretation comes in and a lot of the back and forth. It's good that Roxy and I sit very close to each other. She's in the next room. And we're always going back and forth to each other's desks looking at stuff. So I'm curious Um, on some of the vocabulary that you guys use. This might sound kind of bizarre to some folks, but... When you and Roxy are talking about the way the bike is going to actually look and be designed, what are some of the words you use to, to like, because the words will suggest the ideas behind what this bike should embody. So how do you, what's your vocabulary you use as you discuss this? Um, one of the big ones is the facet lines. Okay. We're always talking about facet lines. And those are... So that's like the edge of a tube, essentially. Yeah, they're, they're the creases okay. that you find in our surfaces. And they wrap around the tubes and form things like the shock mounts and flow back out into tubes. And so we're always playing around with facet lines, cool. uh, trying to make things look good and make sense. And How would you describe the flow of the facet lines? Would you use words like aggressive or yeah, absolutely. minimalist? Or yeah, uh, svelte and aggressive and curvy and flowy and um you know depending on what the bike is the bike is going to be you know aggressive enduro bike then it needs to look like it and so you don't put some bunch of little flowy lines on it like you actually try to make something beefy looking sure so cool so you guys Uh, are thinking about the bike's inherent personality as you're going through the yeah and that that's that's what roxy does like she's trying to give the bike personality and a look yeah it's independent from all their other bikes and still have the Ibis feel to it. Um, so Independent of the other bikes, but with the Ibis feel. But recognizable but, as an Ibis, yeah. But also so. at the same time consistent with its design intent. Right. So and, you're tying in three and, different and, things And, and, and like structurally okay. Yes. And so, yeah, she's got to balance all that. And then I have to figure out how to make it in 3D. And Dave <laughs> and, has to figure and, out and, where and, the points are all going right, to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so you, you, get, you can see why there's so much iteration back and forth. Yes. Um, and so, so working with Dave, what's some of the vocabulary you use when you're discussing suspension performance? Uh, stuff like anti-squat and you know, leverage rate, progressiveness, okay. and uh, you know that kind of stuff just to get it to pedal well and uh, have the suspension feel like it should. Sure. So. And if you had to categorize the IBIS usage of the DW link, do you have any ways that you think about it personally? Um. Well, we always go for a really good pedaling bike. Yep. You know, that's like top line. Yeah, that's the Ibis <laughs> uh, mantra more or less. Yeah. It's like good-looking bikes that pedal really efficiently. Yeah. Um, Pedals like an Ibis, I've heard it. Yeah, and, and then we always try to make a just like inherently strong and simple frame design. Okay. So we try not to do anything too crazy. We gotcha. kind of learned our lesson on the Ripley the V1 Ripley with the eccentrics and taking years to figure that out. We're like, they work, though. They, they work. Um, but it just took us a while to Those get Those were hard. To, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was there. Uh, that's yeah, when I was working at Ibis, yeah. and I saw you guys go through all those different prototypes. Yeah. I remember showing so, certain distributors the prototypes at Eurobike. Mm-hmm. I remember showing certain prototypes again years later yeah, at so, Eurobike. <laughs> yeah, so we, we try to make something that's going to work out just inherently well. So. Before we wrap this all up, one thing that we did not discuss on the Ripley that folks might be curious about is the omission of these eccentrics. Yeah. They, Why? They started to get in the way of long dropper posts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, especially on the small and medium-sized frames. You know, once we got our taste of 175, 185, 
length dropper posts, we really couldn't go back. And it's those long dropper posts that make today's modern geometry possible. Yeah. Because um, that seat, seat angle rotates forward. Yeah. And it come up from and the And you ground. can't ride a bike with the seat rotated forward without a dropper post yeah. because you just can't get behind it on a descent. The seat just ends up in your chest. And so you couldn't do that uh, forward seating position until we had really long dropper posts. And because we had really long dropper posts to deal with, we couldn't also have eccentrics in the same seat tube. Gotcha. And so... That's where we're like, hey, we have this new Ritmo platform that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Let's base it off that. And the idea of moving the eccentrics off the seat tube would have then created some cluster of extra big tubes and not. Yeah, the eccentrics were really good for packaging front derailleurs oh, and maintaining okay. like the two uprights on the sides. Um, and so they were good for the time, but we just don't need to deal with that anymore. So, do any bikes besides the Hakalugi MX currently use a front derailleur? Nope. We even took it off the hardtail. The DV9 doesn't have a front nope. derailleur. Wow. Nope. Wow. So, yeah. RIP, front derailleurs. Yeah, no more front derailleurs. <laughs> the Mojo 3 had a little spot, it, right? It, yeah, I guess it technically has a mount, but we haven't sold the Mojo 3 with a front derailleur on it in probably three years. So, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. They're, they're dead. Well, speaking of front derailleurs, this nicely ties us into our next question. So what's the parts compatibility between the new Ripley and, say, the LS V3? Most of it's going to work except for your front derailleur. Okay. Uh, the one thing that did change was the lower headset cup. Okay. It goes from an external cup to an internal ZS-style headset. Gotcha. Uh, the bottom rack is the same. The rear axle is the same. The brake mount's the same. The seat post is the same. Um, fork offset technically the changed. The fork offset changes. Uh, you will want to do that. I feel like you could get away with riding it. You could get away with it, but, but I've had several uh, IBIS employees who have done just that. They yeah. moved their parts over from their old Ripley's, and they just didn't get along with the bike at first, and the fork offset fixed everything for them. Okay. Like, it was more dramatic than I expected, because I rode both fork offsets on the Ripmo to f try to figure out yeah. that. Yeah, I rode them both on the Ripley as well. Yeah, back when we went the other way yeah. a couple of years ago. Um <laughs> Everything's different now. Yes, isn't that uh, funny? Yeah, so it seems to be more dramatic on this bike than it even was on the Ritmo. Um, so, yeah, I strongly recommend getting the 44 offset. Gotcha. But don't just use your old fork. Yeah. Man, I remember that push to the 51 back on the original Ripley, yeah. and Ibis was not the only brand at the time pushing for that. And I think for the desired ride characteristics of that bike that it definitely helped especially for the target end user yeah i remember going that direction and actually i rode a 44 42 offset x-fusion fork for quite a while and i thought the bike rode pretty well and then yeah. i tried this other four had a pike with a 51 offset and it rode fine yeah it's I mean, not a dramatic difference but you can feel it yeah and well i had a short travel with the oh, smaller yeah. offset, and then I had a bigger travel with the bigger offset. Oh, okay. So it honestly, the trail measurement probably didn't change all that okay. much because the head angle was getting steeper. That was then shrinking the trail, but then the offset was smaller, bringing it back out, and then vice versa with the longer fork, okay. bigger offset. Yeah. So I don't have an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. So the employees at Ibis who went from 130. Long That's just the same fork from one to, to 130 yeah, yeah. short offset fork. I've definitely knows the difference, and gotcha. they all prefer the short offset. Cool. So. And other companies are going in a similar direction, it seems. Yeah, like. it seems like it. Cool. Well, that just about wraps up all the questions I had. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the new Ripley that you're especially proud of or something that challenged you a ton when you were designing it? Um, 
I just really like how it rides. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's my favorite bike right now. Cool. Uh, right now. Yeah. <laughs> so that so, means that you you know that one day yeah. you're going to think of ways to make it better. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of rides that I want to go do where the Ripley wouldn't be appropriate. Nice. So, you know, short of going up to Downeyville, I'm going to take my Ripmo for that. Ah, but pretty okay. much anything else, the Ripley's going to work pretty darn well and I'm going to have fun on it. Excellent. So, excellent. Uh, before we wrap this up, one final question that I thought I might throw out there. What are your favorite bikes from respected competitors? Ooh. Um, they don't even have to have anything to do with the Ripley, but if there's other yeah. things out there that you just were like, man, they did a good job with that. It might be interesting to hear. Let's see. I haven't ridden a lot of competitors' bikes in a while. <laughs> I used to do that more. And yeah. I haven't done it in a while. Um, I mean, there's so many different folks pushing things in so many different ways, too. It's hard yeah. to really ride enough to get a, a proper sample of the whole pie. Yeah. I I would say the bike that I'm most curious to ride would be that uh, Forbidden. Oh, Dru really? Yeah, the Druid, cool. the High Pivot. I've never ridden a High Pivot bike. Wow. So... I'd like to try that. Okay. That seemed cool and interesting. And yeah. Like, it was cool to see well, somebody. Well, you kind of have ridden a high pivot bike because you had that Iron Horse Yakuza for a while. That wasn't that high pivot. It's not that high pivot, that, but it's pretty rearward. Yeah, it's a rearward chain line pivot. Yeah. So. But I bet that's like a 50% of the effect. Maybe it's not 50. Maybe it's only 20% yeah. of the effect of the Forbidden. Yeah, pivot. it's not quite the same. Interesting. But that that was the bike where I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to try that. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, shout out to those guys yeah. for designing something that has piqued the interest yeah. <laughs> of a very established engineer. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. If you have any questions for us about the Ripley, feel free to shoot them over to skendall at jensenusa.com, and maybe we can do a follow-up podcast down the line. Nope, no huge promises here, but maybe. You never know. And as always, thanks for joining us as we discuss the world of bikes. Stay tuned. We'll have monthly episodes continuing to drop here on the Jensen USA podcast channel. I'm your co-host, Jeff Kennelly, and I'll see you guys next time. I think we did it. All right.